I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. And this is London, but broadcasting to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet, these are very dramatic, portentous, somber, and potentially catastrophic times. What happened in the early hours of Friday morning uh, in the airport uh, precinct at Baghdad International Airport to an internationally accredited diplomat with a diplomatic passport, a general, of the Iranian Armed Forces, and many others, nine others, were obliterated in seconds by a drone strike boasted of immediately by the United States government. The Pentagon was careful to insist in the first sentence that the action was at the direction of the president. So they made it clear even before Donald Trump with his rather obscure, low-resolution tweeting of an American flag made it clear that this was an official operation. Let's get the first thing out of the way. This was an entirely illegal act of international terrorism. Remember that when you hear reference to the T-word. This was a terrorist attack by a state, not just any state, but a state that has a seat on the Permanent Security Council of the United Nations on an accredited diplomat, on a diplomatic mission of another member state of the United Nations. This was a state-sponsored extrajudicial murder. It's important that this is kept in mind because you will hear, already have heard, all kinds of quasi-mystical exculpations of this crime. There is no ground in international law for the action that the United States government took on Friday. It was an act of piracy. It was an act of international terrorism. The second thing that we have to put in place before proceeding to debate this matter is that the proximate cause of the events on Friday morning were not the attack on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad by Iraqi citizens just a few days before, but were the withdrawal from the Iran nuclear treaty by the United States of America, which ripped up a solemn and binding treaty that Iran was abiding by impeccably, ripped it up unilaterally and began around of not sanctions, but absolute embargo on the Iranian people, 80 million strong, half of them uh, young people, many of them children now suffering, even dying 
as a result of American sanctions, which characteristically they have sought to extraterritorialize, to force other people into implementing their unilaterally imposed sanctions. That's where this begins. There was a treaty. It was working well. Donald Trump ripped it up. And to the horror of every other party to the treaty, including Great Britain and the European Union and the permanent five of the Security Council, minus the United States. All other actions have flowed ineluctably from that. The United States has been effectively trying to strangle the civilian population of Iran, 80 millions of them, so that they rise up against their government and overthrow it in a classic regime change operation. Classic even for Iran. In 1953, the United States and Britain ignominiously played exactly the same role in trying to secure the overthrow of the democratically elected Prime Minister of Iran, Mr. Mossadegh. It's a repeat of the Operation Mongoose of 1953, which seeks to bring about entirely illegitimately, illegally, the overthrow of a sovereign government, a member state of the United Nations. Now, the events at the US Embassy only happened because Donald Trump bombed a camp belonging to a part of the Iraqi National Army. The Popular Mobilization Forces are a part, a legitimate, accredited part of the Iraqi Armed Forces. I remind you that until today, and I'll come back to that, the United States was in alliance with the government of Iraq, whose armed forces Donald Trump attacked. He killed 25 people. By the way, many of them were Yazidis. Yes, the very Yazidis over whom we cried such crocodile tears when they were in the grisly hands of ISIS, the so-called Islamic State. The bombing of the PMF camp killed 25 people, and when the crowd had finished burying them, they headed for the U.S. Embassy. They did some peripheral damage to the U.S. Embassy. General Suleiman had nothing whatsoever to do with the events at the American Embassy. He was not in Iraq when these events took place. It was not Iranians who were attacking the U.S. Embassy. It was Iraqis. Now, the circumstances which govern the presence of U.S. troops and other forces, and British forces, by the way, 700 British forces in Iraq now cowering down for what will be the inevitable Iranian retaliation, are strictly governed by agreement with the government of Iraq, which decided today that the United States forces and indeed all of the coalition forces must leave Iraq. Now, you'll recall, we invaded Iraq to introduce democracy. The Iraqi government is a democratically elected government. It has just ordered the United States to leave. It will therefore be, again, an act of international lawlessness if the United States refuses to leave a country whose sovereign, legitimate government 
has just ordered them to leave. Now let's come on to the more dramatic, more portentous issues. As you will have seen today from the footage, if you are on social media, of the biggest funeral in the history of the world. General Suleiman has been received, his remains have been received by millions of people, millions, in every city in Iran through which the coffin has now passed. There were millions in Awaz, there were millions in Mashhad, and there will be perhaps uncountable millions in Tehran where he will meet his final resting place. Bear that in mind too because Donald Trump likes to convince you uh, that the Iranian people are against their government, just looking for an opportunity to overthrow it. That if the United States were to overthrow it, they, like the occupation forces in Iraq, would be greeted by flowers and sweets. Anyone who still believes that after the scenes of these funerals today in Iran needs their head carefully examined by a doctor. It's absolutely self-evident that this murder of Soleimani has brought the Iranian people together, left, right and center, reformist and hardliner. Even the nationalist Iranians outside of the country who have absolutely nothing in common with the governance of the Islamic Republic. This is an affront to all Iranians. Only paid stooges to be accepted from that statement. Virtually every Iranian in the world is outraged and united by this act of Donald Trump. Now, President Rouhani, my former distinguished constituent in Glasgow, now the president of Iran, visited the family home of General Soleimani earlier today. His weeping daughters asked President Rouhani, who will avenge our father? And instantly the president, a moderate, replied, don't worry about that for a second. All of us will be his avengers. So that's why I say that there is nothing more certain in this life than that the Iranians will retaliate in a proportional way. And what would be a proportional way to the murder of the second most important person in the country? Effectively, like a foreign government boasting that it had murdered the heir to the throne of Great Britain, for example, or the crown prince of anywhere in the country. What would be a proportionate response to that? Well, it will not be a stray uh, um, uh, minor rocket attack on an American camp in Kenya, though that did happen today, or a stray rocket attack on uh, American troops' barracks in Iraq itself. It will be very, very much more significant than that. Neither will it be hidden by the Iranians. They will not seek to blame it on proxies. It will be their act or acts and they will make it uh, clear to the world that they have carried it out. And for it to be remotely proportionate, it will have to be extremely big. Now, that will inevitably beget a further response from the United States. Earlier today, Donald Trump tweeted this. 
The United States just spent $2 trillion on military equipment. We are the biggest and by far the best in capitals in the world, exclamation mark. If Iran attacks an American base or any American, we will be sending some of that brand new beautiful equipment their way and without hesitation. Their way without hesitation. So the scene is set. If any American or any American base is attacked by Iran, it's game on. It's all out war between the United States and it hopes its allies, one of which is guaranteed, but only one is guaranteed, that being Netanyahu's Israel, for whom all of this is a splendid and welcome distraction from Mr. Netanyahu's impending imprisonment. Now, if Iran were to attack anywhere, it's my guess that it will not be in Iraq, because the situation in Iraq has moved decisively in Iran's favor. The Americans are being expelled from the country. Many of the hitherto disparate uh, political factions in Iraq are coming together uh, in defiance of the United States action on sovereign Iraqi soil. It's my sincere belief that neither will it be in Israel, although Iran's rhetoric often hypes its potential to strike Israel, I don't believe that that will be the site of Iran's retaliation. The site of Iran's retaliation, in my view, will be in the Persian Gulf, where, uh, to use a Rumsfeldism, there is a target-rich environment. The Saudi uh, dictatorship is host to a truly gigantic American military presence. It's also, of course, one of the world's biggest oil producers. It's very near Iran. It has an ancient enmity between the two countries. It has a Shiite religious minority in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia, which may very well rise up against the tyranny of the Wahhabist dictatorship in Riyadh which routinely crucifies and murders members of that Shiite minority, which is more than 20% of the population of Saudi Arabia. If Iran hits Saudi Arabia and sends its oil fields into Australian levels of fire, then there will not be a barrel of oil to be procured in the world at less than $500. That's my prediction. An oil price shock that will destabilize the world economy instantly. The price of oil already steadily rising before a shot has been fired by the Iranians in retaliation. But there are others. There are others in particular like Bahrain. It's my belief I have no internal information on this, of course. But I do know about military and political events. And I do know the demography and the topography of the Middle East very well. It's my belief uh, that the Iranian attack 
in response to the murder of General Soleimani will take place in Bahrain, where an exceedingly target-rich environment exists, where you have an overwhelming Shiite, Shiite minority population ruled over by a tiny and ridiculous comic opera, Gilbert and Sullivan Sunni monarchy, which only exists because across the causeway in Saudi Arabia, it has limitless support from Saudi Arabia. So if you attack Bahrain, you're also attacking Saudi Arabia. But here's the rub. The US 7th Fleet is based in Bahrain, as is, thanks to the government of Theresa May, a brand new British naval base, where naval assets from both countries shelter. Now, Bahrain is a very small place. It's the size of a very large car park. And in that car park, you have the possibility of hitting British, American, Saudi, and Bahraini targets in a way which can obliterate Bahrain as an independent state. My logic is that that is the place where Iran will strike. But wherever it is, it will be responded to, according to Donald Trump on Twitter, in, without hesitation, in moments. And then we've got a very big quagmire, a very big bonfire indeed. Because when Donald Trump responds, Iran will respond again, and Donald Trump will respond again, and Iran will respond again. The Straits of Hormuz will be closed and on fire. The Saudi oil fields, perhaps on fire. The Qatari and Emirati oil fields on fire. You won't be able to buy a barrel of oil by that time at any price. And so the international economy will come crunching to a halt. And that's before you factor in what the attitude will be of Iran's friends. It's big friends, Russia and China, and its smaller friends, Hezbollah in Syria and in Lebanon. Its friends in the Palestinian resistance in Gaza and elsewhere. You feel me? I'm not necessarily talking about World War III, but I am talking about war throughout the world. And if that isn't enough to make you sit up straight and pay attention, I really don't know what would. Now, Mike Pompeo, the US Secretary of State, was loudly bemoaning earlier today in Washington the lack of support he'd received from European leaders. He singled out France and Germany, but he said even the British had not been helpful or supportive enough. Um, Boris Johnson was, of course, sunning himself in Moustique. Is that how you say it? Mystique, Moustique, some island anyway in the Caribbean. So uh, perhaps he was out of earshot of international events. Lo and behold, he has now spoken. And the words that he has spoken are distinctly unhelpful, pleasing to Mike Pompeo, but not pleasing to most, I think, of the British population, judging by political reactions so far in this country to the crisis in the Gulf. Boris Johnson says we shall not lament the death of the man that many millions of Iranians are on the street lamenting. Now, that will uh, come as 
uh, a very, very bitter blow uh, to the uh, family of Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe, who is wasting away unjustly in an Iranian prison cell. It may well cook her goose. She may well now find new charges brought against her, a new trial, and the chances of her release on the back of Boris Johnson, who played quite a big part, actually, in her incarceration in the first place with his lazy stupidity, uh, may well be held responsible. We've got a poll on it. What should Boris Johnson do next? A, back Trump. B, oppose Trump. C, remain neutral. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. I'm joined uh, by one of our brightest guests, a regular now on the show, Patrick Christie's uh, writer and broadcaster. I want to talk uh, about UK politics generally with you, but let me ask you first uh, about the British government's response uh, to the Gulf crisis. Mm. Uh, Pompeo was not happy uh, by the absolute silence, which I took to be diplomatic silence, mm. uh, on the part of Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson has now spoken. Do you think it's helpful, what he said? No, I thought it was quite a weak response that aimed at pleasing both sides, but probably pleases none of them, to be perfectly mm. honest with you. I am very concerned about the current situation. And my great-grandparents lived through World War One. my grandparents lived through World War II. I don't want to live through World War Three. And the You issue... won't live through it. We'll all be dead well, there you go. if that happens. Well, there you are. Um, look, my concern for this is, is, is that we may, as, as the UK now, get dragged into some kind of conflict that we will be led into by a kind of tangerine-skinned uh, bloke who doesn't tend to make very sound decisions. We're led to believe that this decision to, uh, to, to, to kill Soleimani was made in Mar-a-Lago, um, preferably quite near a golf course, we understand. Uh, this is not the way that international politics, the chess match of international politics, should play out. Donald Trump... Both Bush and Obama rejected this option of mm. killing Soleimani in previous uh, administrations. And it's said in the New York Times today that the Pentagon officials were astounded yeah. uh, that Trump plumped for this option. I think, personally, the reason that they were astounded, apart from maybe all of it, really, is that actually it necessitates an Iranian retaliation. Mm. This guy, as you well know, George, is almost mm. the kind of military David Beckham of that part of the world. I mean, there are animated films of him blowing up US warships. He's, he's, he's the definition of a hero. And the idea that the Iranians will just do nothing now is nonsense. So they will do something, whatever that is. And, uh, and then, obviously, it's how Donald Trump reacts to that. And Well, if we've got well, anything we've to go got by, his tweet, yeah. it's, going to be, it's going to be pretty epic for all the wrong reasons. So yeah. where does that realistically leave us? And especially in this post-Brexit world, are we going to be forced into a situation where we have to follow America like a lapdog into a war in the Middle East, whether that's a proxy war or a direct war? That's not a situation I want to be in. Quite so. Uh, Boris Johnson went on holiday. Uh, a lot of people criticised that. I didn't myself. I think he's entitled to a holiday. Uh, but uh, it did come an unfortunate time, as these things tend to do. Should he have come back earlier? I, I personally think he should have come back earlier. He was quite content to speak through his mouthpiece, Dominic Raab, initially, um, and I thought that was probably a mistake. What I will say, though, I think is politically, he wanted to distance himself, probably both geographically and, and in terms of vocally as well, from mm. the situation. Yeah, it was the equivalent of, uh, I can't hear yeah, you. So we're going through a tunnel. <laughs> going into a tunnel. Yeah, yeah that's, that's uh, how I read that. Mm. Uh, but I'm not sure that it's worked out all that uh, well for him. Well, 
world. And I'm not sure that Dominic Raab is the man I choose to be my mouthpiece. He, he always uh, looks uh, like a rabbit in the headlights, doesn't he? Uh, yeah, a little, and also geographically challenged, you'll recall, <laughs> during the Brexit issue. Uh, he, he didn't seem to know that much about international uh, affairs. Let me switch it mm. to the Labour Party, because you're yes. a man that is across all the political uh, events in, mm. in Britain. As I put it earlier, some of the horses appear to have died in the stalls. Uh, Yvette Cooper mm. has pulled out of a race she hadn't actually joined. Yes. David Lamy has pulled out of a race he hadn't actually joined. There's two horses down uh, uh, for a start. <laughs> the metaphors are swimming through my head right now. Um, but uh, uh, there are others, uh, including the bookie's original favourite, uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey, who may not have died in the stalls, but she hasn't said a whinny. Uh, she has been entirely silent since this whole thing uh, began. Uh, who do you think is the man or woman to watch? I, I mean, look, I think the smart money at the moment will, will probably be on Sir Keir Starmer, um, whether or not that's what they need or whether or not, to be honest with you, any of the candidates are necessarily what this Labour Party needs at the minute is up for debate. I think the Labour Party's got itself into a new pickle, as it were, if it wasn't already in one. Enough, Jess Phillips, yeah. we're hearing today, Remarkable, is, yeah. is coming out and She's saying... She's going to campaign to rejoin the European Union. OK, all right, that's... I mean, replace the longest suicide note in history and just... just With the shortest one. Insert that line. That, that's that. <laughs> How tone-deaf can you be? That's one of the reasons why the mm. Labour Party suffered a, a massive defeat in the last election, was their indecision over Brexit and the probability that their, their government would end up leading us back into the European Union. So if she really wants to go down that line, then fine, but I think she's going nowhere. Well, a Labour Party that uh, campaign to rejoin the European Union would be committing political suicide and yet she is the third favourite in the in the running. What I think is interesting is the way that that Labour Party elects its leaders which is clearly just just entirely off uh, a membership base so mm. actually their membership Well, you need 21 MPs to nominate you. That's true absolutely but I suspect that what she might be doing here is again rather naively I think pandering to just the people who might directly elect her in terms of that membership base, mm. who probably are, for the vast majority of them, Remainers. Well, so we keep thought. being told, yeah, nobody ever produces any, <laughs> uh, any stats that prove that. But, yeah, we're told, overwhelmingly, the members of the Labour Party were for Remain mm. and were for a second referendum. But whether they're for the madness of promising to rejoin the European Union, after all this trouble that there's been, mm. I've got my doubts about that. Uh, and she's also, it's paradoxical, she's the candidate clearly favoured by uh, Mr Murdoch and his newspapers, but he doesn't want to rejoin the European no. Union, I wouldn't have thought. No. Uh, and she's also, maybe, I don't know, she's looking for the Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair kind of uh, organs, newspapers, money, and so on. Do you think that might be behind it? I, I think potentially. Well, look, what, what I think realistically is the case is that there's a credibility gap at the moment with a lot of these candidates. And so if you look at Jess Phillips, yes, I think it would be quite entertaining to see her at the dispatch bar shouting at Boris Johnson. And just in terms of... What Personally, people, I hope she gets it. I, th I think it <laughs> would be... But that's for uh, entirely <laughs> uh, uh, partisan reasons. <laughs> and nothing would, for me, demonstrate the absolute bankruptcy of the British Labour Party <laughs> than having uh, this... Uh, uh, how shall I put it, occasionally foul-mouthed woman uh, as, their, uh, as their leader. Uh, but I doubt it will happen. I think you're right, Keir Starmer is the horse to beat, isn't he? Yeah, I, Tell I, the viewers and listeners, 
especially those abroad, mm. more about Keir Starmer? Well, Keir Starmer is, is widely regarded as uh, one of the, the, the preeminent uh, um, legal minds in, in this country. He's obviously been knighted and he's been the sat... The Queen's Council. Absolutely. He's, he's regarded as a, a, a formidable intellectual. If you take his politics out of it, he is regarded as an intelligent bloke. And, and he is seen to be someone who is probably the more statesmanlike out of the other Labour candidates. He is naturally more central. And what we're hearing today is that if he were to uh, emerge as the new Labour leader, they would try to do a momentum, but with more centrist, and i.e. try and flood that Labour membership back with people more aligned to a central political outlook and drag it away from that kind of far left, as it were, element. So I think he would look to remodel the Labour Party. Out of the candidates that I'm seeing, in my personal opinion, he's the one who could give Boris Johnson the best run for his money at a national election. He'd play the QC... Forensic, yeah. repetitive, Which deadly is bad boring. For Boris, because he's not over the granular detail, Boris Johnson. Well, quite. Uh, Boris Johnson, the bluster, the Latin, <laughs> the, <laughs> the jokes and the, and the japes. Uh, Starmer would try to be bowling. Uh, steadily uh, at him in the hope of uh, getting wickets. Yeah, uh, and you would have thought as well that maybe Keir Starmer could entice back in some of the people who have left the Labour Party because they didn't like Jeremy Corbyn. And I think as well, when you looked at some of the scandals, whether or not they should have been scandals for debate, but the anti-Semitism issue, let's say, that was gripping the Labour Party, I don't think... That's Keir disappeared. It has, it has. There's it, no... Yeah. Anti-Semitism is no longer a problem in Britain. It's official. <laughs> but I, my point is, just in a political sense, I think Keir Starmer would have found a way to put that to bed, and as opposed mm. to the two and a bit years that Jeremy Corbyn mm. let it, in a way, drag on for. And so there's something in that. I think Boris Johnson probably is sitting there thinking Keir Starmer is his, his biggest You think he's test. the one that Boris Well, it's definitely fears. not Rebecca Long-Bailey. No, let's uh, <laughs> come on to her. Uh, she is a woman who has risen without trace. Uh, I personally have never heard her speak. I've never seen her. I've never met her. And uh, yet she's the official Corbyn uh, continuity mm. candidate. Um, I see no evidence, no reason to believe, including her total silence to date in this campaign, this contest, where her opponents are already off and running. Mm. Uh, I see actually nothing that commends her as the next leader of the Labour Party. Can you give me a reason or two why she'd be a credible, serious candidate? It's, it's genuinely one of life's greatest mysteries to me, this. Why, how Rebecca Long-Bailey's managed to propel herself, or been propelled, I suspect, up towards the upper echelons of the Labour Party. I, I don't know what she stands for politically. We keep hearing that she's this continuity candidate. What I've heard from her over the years is that she's seen a leader of a party, she's seen what's maybe been most politically advantageous to herself, and she's agreed with him. The Labour Party, as we know, do want a female leader, and all right, OK, there's a case for that, although I think most people would argue... Nobody that lived through Margaret Thatcher and Theresa <laughs> May is automatically attracted to that idea. Exactly, and I think, on a personal note, she should just be the best candidate for the job. Mm. Um, and I don't see that that is her. She's not a particularly good orator from everything that we've heard her she's say. She's definitely not, she, no. She's not, and, and also, she has got that Dominic Raab-esque rabbit-in-the-headlights look. What I will say is this, is I have some friends in the Conservative Party, they hope that Rebecca Long-Bailey gets elected, and that should be a concern for Labour voters. Uh, and that's just about it, isn't it? I mean, there are also Rands, Lisa Nandy oh, and Lewis. so on, but they're, they're make-weights in this contest, aren't they? I, I think so, yeah. And so when will this all be over, Patrick? Uh, 
I think on Monday they decide mm. the timetable. What is it likely to be? Well, I'm not 100% sure at the moment, George. I'll be very honest with you, but I would expect that it'd probably be a several. I think it's a three or four week period, is it not? After they decide the timetable, that the Labour membership has to vote in that. So mm. I think that what we'll see then is. is so you think by February we'll know? I would expect so, and I certainly think as well that we will see one of the three that we've just mentioned drop out along the way, and I think we'll end up seeing more of a two-horse race. I would expect that Jess Phillips potentially. I could be wrong over this. Jess Phillips might be doing this initially to boost her own platform a little bit. If she doesn't get a lot of early, for want of a better phrase, momentum, then I suspect that she will pull away and she may fall into line behind, I would expect, Keir Starmer as opposed to... Yes, yeah, so all the arguments for a woman leader will then fall away yeah. when you're supporting a man. <laughs> uh, uh, there's... I don't call him a joker. I don't mean it that way, but there is a joker in the pack. Ian Lavery, the yes. chairman of the Labour Party, former leader of the British Miners' Union, a northern man, so northern many southerners can't understand what he's saying, Fine by me. Uh, is a working-class hero. Uh, he fought the miners' strike from first day to last day. Uh, he uh, may not be uh, the sharpest House of Commons debater and so on, but he would be absolutely emblematic of the very Midlands and North that Labour lost catastrophically on election day. He may not stand. If he does stand, can he get 21 MPs to nominate him? Clearly to me, there are not 42 left-wing MPs, mm. nothing like it. So either him or Rebecca Bailey could, would have to drop out. But if he were the continuity candidate, mm. I, I think that would make a difference. What's your view? What, what really annoys me and has annoyed me since this election is a lot of people coming out saying Labour won the argument. The argument was the general election and they got mm. battered, right? Mm. And one of the reasons they got battered was not actually just because of Corbyn's policies. In fact, on paper, some of those policies, if he could have costed them up properly, would have been all right. The issue was, in my opinion, Jeremy Corbyn and where he was from, i.e. the kind of Islington area. In Ian Lavery, you've got a Brexiteer, a working-class hero, who is Northern. Right? He could have, in my opinion, have proposed a lot of the similar policies as Jeremy Corbyn did and quite possibly won or certainly come very, very close. Sometimes, in my opinion, the, the, the answer is staring him right in the face and maybe has been for quite a while. And if the Labour Party decide that Rebecca Long-Bailey should be their hardest left candidate, as it were, over Ian Lavery, then you might as well just wave goodbye to her. That's my view. That's funny. And we, you and I haven't discussed this. Uh, that's my view entirely, actually, because... Of course, the smart people in the metropolis would uh, mock him. They'd yeah. mock his accent. They'd mock his lifestyle. You know, flat cap, pub, beer. I don't know if he's probably smokes, got a whip it there you know, as well. You know. might be. Might have a whip. <laughs> but in the act of mocking him, they would be re-identifying northern people, Midlands people, with the Labour Party because the people who live there look like, sound like, act like him. And so these people would themselves feel attacked by the metropolitan elite. In my view, it would be a stroke of genius for Labour to put up Ian Lavery, which is probably why they won't uh, do it. Look, we've only got a few <laughs> minutes left. Uh, we mustn't ignore the elephant in the room that you and I have been yes. talking about for so many years. In uh, just a few weeks, a couple of weeks, not even two weeks, yeah. we'll be leaving the European Union. What will that feel like? Oh. I mean, when we wake up 
on February 1st. What are the things that will immediately be apparent to us? Well, I suppose initially, maybe not too much. However, what we are going to enter into is 11 months' worth of, of negotiations. And what I think is going to be a key difference for this than when we've done it before is there's going to be a gradual recognition that actually, in my opinion now, we have started to have uh, the upper hand. If not, certainly, we've, we've definitely levelled the playing field. Boris Johnson's huge majority has done that for us, but also his bullish nature and also the people behind the scenes working on it. Look, I think that the fact is that now we have a trade-off to make and a decision to make as a nation, which is that are we willing to forego competitive advantage in order to have essentially tariff-free trade with the European Union and to give them access to our fishing waters? And the answer to that question will dictate what kind, if any, Brexit deal that we get. I just think that on February the 1st, when we wake up, we are going to see a front-foot Britain, as opposed to the, the kind of tractor stuck in thick mud that was Theresa May's premiership, and that is good. Just in practical terms, uh, I wake up, I decide to go to Amsterdam. Will I need a visa? No. No, not initially, because we've got a year-long, well, 11-month-long, as it were, transition period, where essentially everything remains the same. But even thereafter, I mean, this idea that we should need a visa to start going to play, you know, holiday to wherever we go on the continent there... Yeah. Is that absolutely... would require Spain or Portugal or the Netherlands to demand a visa. And why would and they? Why would they? Yeah. But this is they it. want us to go there and spend our money. Yeah, you can, you can, you can make us get a and visa if you their want. people want to come here uh, <laughs> and visit... England, Scotland, Wales. Yeah. Uh, so there's no, there's kind of no, all, all this apocalyptic talk that the Remain camp uh, talked millions of British people into, that somehow we were cutting ourselves off from the continent even though we've never been attached to it. It's, it's balderdash, isn't it? I guess, and I would keep an eye on the markets as well because what we were told was the second that Brexit becomes a almost tangible reality, as it were. We're going to drop off a cliff and it's going to be terrible. What markets thrive off, arguably wrongly, is confidence, right? And Boris Johnson, again, like him or loathe him, and I suspect plenty of people loathe him, he is a very confident man. He's very good at portraying a positive view of Britain. And I know that the markets, for example, will still feel a boost off the fact that Boris Johnson is in charge as opposed to Jeremy Corbyn. That's just the way that they think, right? And so, actually, I don't expect us to fall off a cliff economically in the short term or the long term. Patrick Christie, always a pleasure uh, to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. What should Boris Johnson do next on the Persian Gulf crisis? A, back Trump. 23% of you say yes, back Trump. B, oppose Trump. 49% of you. And C, remain neutral. 28%. That's a surprisingly large number of people say we should back Trump. To me, 1,521 votes so far. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. I'm getting breaking news from uh, Reuters. Reuters is reporting missiles have fallen inside the green zone in Baghdad and also casualty figures from the attack on uh, a US base in Kenya that I referred to earlier. I'll get you the numbers there. Uh, but these are, I think, sporadic uh, bushfires. I don't believe this is the Iranian response, but we'll see what these missiles in the green zone uh, actually mean in uh, just a few minutes. Jeffrey in Glasgow says, Dear George, being a completely one-sided and totally biased show run by loony leftists. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. My goodness, I'm looking through the glass. There's not a single loony leftist there, not one. I'm pretty certain that you will not read this letter. <laughs> Don't you feel a pillock, Jeffrey? Uh, I would like to tell you that I totally support Trump's drone strike that killed the ruthless Iranian general who murdered thousands throughout the years. Jeffrey, I'd so love to talk to you. Here is my number, 02077-982255. Give me a call. Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. Or are you just another gutless coward hiding behind anonymity on the Internet? Now... Charles Shoebridge is a former army officer, former Scotland Yard detective, former counter-terrorism and intelligence officer, a lawyer, a writer, and a broadcaster, pretty well qualified then, to talk to us uh, about this. And he joins me now on the line. Charles, welcome. Hello, George, and... Uh... I'd like to say... Well, you know, you've taken the words right out of my mouth. I was about to say Happy New Year to you, but it seems incongruous uh, in the uh, circumstances. Uh, Let's start with the immediate present, the news I've just broken uh, about uh, um, missiles in the green zone, three, I think, uh, and the attack uh, by uh, an ISIS outfit in uh, coming out of Somalia, presumably, into Kenya on a base which seems to have killed some U.S. intelligence personnel there. Uh, do you agree with me that these are just skirmishes? This is not the, the real deal so far as the Iranian response to the Soleimani killing is concerned. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think what we're going to see is um, random acts of revenge carried out on a local basis, not orchestrated by the Iranians, uh, far from it. Um, actually, this is, I think, probably spontaneous uh, actions by <clears throat> people and militias and even perhaps individuals on the ground, certainly mm-hmm. as far as Iraq. I mean, it's breaking news, as you say, about the issue in um, <clears throat> Kenya as it is in um, Baghdad. But certainly, of course, if it's ISIS that has carried out this um, attack in Kenya, uh, of course, ISIS is uh, one of the organizations that will be celebrating the death of this Iranian general, because it was the Iranian general, remember, uh, in Iraq and also in Syria, Syria who uh, pretty much devised the strategy on the ground, uh, ironically, in conjunction with the uh, U.S. airstrikes, airstrikes, which, of course, in Iraq and Syria... Soleimani was, was operating shoulder to shoulder with the U.S. against uh, ISIS in Syria. Yeah, absolutely right. And in Iraq as well, of course. And, yeah. of course, therefore, 
this attack, um, if it's taken place tonight by ISIS in, uh, in um, Kenya, this won't be in revenge for the killing of someone who was an enemy of ISIS. No, of course. Um, and, and, um, and of course, how ironic that that therefore would, and that would have happened on the same day that already we're seeing consequences, I think still on quite a low level, relatively speaking, to what they can be and what they will become in the future. The geopolitical consequences that are starting to become apparent, surely even to the American government, as to what its consequences are. And one of those consequences today is that the anti-IS uh, Islamic State coalition in Iraq has suspended all of its operations because it now has to uh, uh, give all of its resources and devote its troops and so on to protecting their own bases against the Iraqi people and militias because of this drone strike. And so consequently, you've got a situation now where already anti-ISIS operations are being uh, hampered by this strike. Uh, you've got actually um, Iran, of course, has today announced its suspension of all cooperation in respect of the nuclear deal. You've got the Iraqi parliament today having voted to expel uh, U.S. and indeed all foreign, including U.K. forces from Iraq and to ban flights, military flights from its airspace. And all of these, I think, are just the start. This is all in just one day. Um, but I think what we're going to see is, um, I, I mean, I wrote an article on this uh, recently, and I said that I think the, um, the effects of this will, be, will take a long time to play out, months, if not years. And I think as a direct result of the consequences of this strike that the Americans have carried out, you will see quite fundamental changes to the order of uh, certainly the geopolitical situation in the Middle East in the next uh, few months and years to come. And I think primarily amongst those will be a massive diminishing of U.S. influence and role in the Middle East, not least because of the withdrawal of its forces. Well, I agree with that in the medium term, and uh, I have the benefit of having read your brilliant article, Disastrous Soleimani Decision Will Likely Hit U.S. Politically, Economically, and in Blood by Charles Shoebridge. You can tell us later where people can read that, please, uh, Charles. Uh, I agree with that in the medium and long term, but the short term is potentially catastrophic before we get there. Maybe none of us will get there. Uh, if uh, you saw the tweet from Donald Trump earlier, I'm sure uh, that if one American is harmed by Iran in retaliation, if one base is attacked, uh, then some of his $2 trillion worth of military hardware <coughs> will, without hesitation, be winging its way uh, towards Iran. Uh, and Trump identified 52 sites, uh, including sites culturally precious uh, to the Iranians, imagine, uh, that he has in that list of 52 uh, places that he's going to attack. That would, of course, set the balloon up completely. We would be in a stage then of total war uh, in the Gulf, uh, Iran is not a weak power uh, by any means. It's not a superpower like the United States. It has no nuclear weapons, a point which I'm going to ask you about in a minute. But can we get through the immediate present uh, even before we see these longer term consequences? The problem is I think Trump has, uh, is probably now realizing um, that he's dug himself very much into a hole. It's interesting today to see uh, hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of <clears throat> just one city in Iran, uh, let alone all the other cities. Um, and they're not, as Trump's officials uh, told the rest of the world, um, and I'm talking about the vice president and I'm talking about the secretary of state, these are high-level officials, 
who promised that the people in the streets of uh, Iran would be dancing with joy at the death of this general. Well, they're not. It's turned out to be the biggest funeral in human history. Uh, They're mourning the death of what they regard as their hero, and from their perspective, certainly uh, with good grounds to regard him as a hero, and arguably even from our perspectives, given the work that this person did against ISIS and other terrorist groups. And, of course, they're calling for vengeance. And I think um, that Trump probably even himself was told by these officials that the result would be the opposite of actually what the result is. And I think Trump has, 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 I think, shown how far out of his depth he is. He's relied on these uh, these, uh, officials to give advice. He's probably felt pressure to take action. There's an opportunity to strike this target that he possibly uh, naively believed would actually be a useful negotiation. A de-escalation. You kill kill the second man in Iran and it's a de-escalatory move. It's, it's interesting how they just don't seem to be there. And this is a, a common factor, I think, in, in Western policy generally, particularly British and American policy, that an inability to actually read how the other side will respond. And that's an inability to actually step inside the shoes of other people. Because let's face it, if the vice president of the United States or the chief of staff of the United States, and this person, Soleimani, was pretty much both of those positions in Iran, if that person was killed by uh, Iran, and a state act of Iran, as it was in America's case, it wasn't some proxy force, America carried out a state killing. If that happened, and then Iran called for de-escalation, we can think what the American response would be, and understandably so. And so yet they don't expect that to come from the Iranians. And let's not forget the Iranians have many allies, not just in the region, but around the world. And it's really a matter of choosing, and over a period of time, what the response will be. And it's, it's tragic, but sadly predictable to see the United Kingdom today, having for two days almost shown independence from uh, U.S. foreign policy by not supporting, not condemning, but certainly not supporting um, the U.S. actions. And today, of course, we've had uh, Rob, the foreign secretary, coming out and doing just that. And so we joined countries such as Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Israel. And that's pretty much it in the whole world that have um, joined uh, to support the American actions. And in doing so, certainly I think we start taking responsibility for what the consequences will be, just as we did in Iraq. Now, uh, one reading of what you've just said is that uh, Trump was somehow misled by his (coughs) officials about the consequences of this action. But the New York Times publishes today, doesn't make it true, of course, uh, that the Pentagon officials were aghast, horrified, astounded uh, that Donald Trump picked this option of the assassination from a list of potential U.S. actions presented to him at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, the New York Times implication is that the deep state knew that this was a very foolish thing to do, but the fool Trump has done it. Uh, do you doubt that uh, analysis? No, I think that analysis is correct, and I think it's consistent with uh, what I've just said, because. I'm not um, suggesting that people who knew what they were talking about, um, such as the military professionals, uh, put this. They may have put the option to Trump, of course, but they will have certainly advised what the consequences are. But, of course, Trump is also taking advice from uh, his officials, um, such, uh, and by which I mean high officials such as uh, Pence, such as Pompeo. And people really, we've got this whole problem, as you know, that since Trump has taken over, that first of all, of course, he's been hampered by the whole... Russiagate um, uh, allegations. Which and the impeachment issue also? The impeachment issue, but also, of course, you've got this constant demand that he shows how tough he is, 
on Russia, on Iran, on Syria, and so on. And that has largely come from the media, which now, quite rightly, actually, I think, including the New York Times, is criticising him for his decision. It's difficult to find grounds to defend that decision having been made. But I also look back to the time when Trump didn't quite wisely withdrew his attack on Iran that was supposed to take place when Iran knocked out a, an, an unmanned US drone, which was only a few months ago. Trump said quite wisely, look, our estimate is we're going to kill hundreds of Iranians. And of course, the subtext of that is, and there'll be lots of Americans killed in return, all for an unmanned drone. So actually, I'll withdraw the, um, the attack. But he got criticized very heavily by the liberal media in the US and indeed in the UK for showing lack of spine mm. and for allowing the Iranians to get away with it. Now, let's not forget, I'm not defending Trump's decision at all. It's a disastrous decision. But I think it may have played a part with him, particularly with the impeachment and an election coming up, that actually he may have seen this as an opportunity to look tough. And I really think he didn't actually understand what the deep consequences of this would be. And the sight of these hundreds of thousands of people on the streets and the lack of support that he's got from allies around the world, uh, apart from that very short list of states that I've mentioned, I think will have come as a shock to him. That doesn't excuse it in any way, but now he's going to have to struggle to get out of this situation without the war that he promised the US people he wouldn't bring on the US people um, to happen because let's face it, he's got an election coming up. He was elected on the mandate of not getting involved in any more of these pointless interventionist wars. Uh, just to uh, buttress the point we both made, uh, the, the civilian casualties are being reported after rockets struck inside the green zone in Baghdad near the U.S. Embassy. At least five rockets have been launched. Uh, another missile landed on the riverbank adjacent to the American Embassy. It's unclear who was responsible for the attack. Meanwhile, one U.S. service member and two U.S. Department of Defense contractors have been killed, and two Department of Defense members, in quotes, have been injured in an attack at Manda Bay Airfield by the Al-Shabaab terror group in Kenya. But the, uh, the green zone rockets are Katyusha's, uh, buttressing the point we've both made that this is not the official uh, response uh, by Iran. Uh, we know how well tooled Iran is. Uh, if they attack American assets in the region, will they do it, as I predict, with, with ballistic missiles rather than Katyusha's and mortars and random uh, shootouts like this? in your view? I suspect they will try and avoid a direct military confrontation with the US. And the simple reason for that is because they would lose that direct military confrontation. It would be symbolic. And I'm sure there's absolutely no shortage of volunteers in Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, uh, and elsewhere that would want to carry out such attacks. But they would be militarily futile. I suspect Iran will, certainly Iran has access to those kind of weapons uh, that, we've, that you've mentioned. But I think that would be so uh, undeniable that that was, uh, if you like, an act of war, as indeed the Americans have carried out, that it would invite strong, uh, clear retaliation and condemnation. Uh, uh, Iran will work to uh, leverage its assets that it's got in, in terms of its advantages. Now, Iran has uh, strong capabilities, for example, as we've seen uh, before many times in terms of drone warfare itself. It has advantages, for example, in cyber warfare, certainly it has the ability to attack uh, U.S. targets, uh, for example, the infrastructure systems of uh, energy networks, of, of transport networks, uh, financial networks, for example, in the United States. And this can cause great uh, harm and financial cost. Um, but also, of course, it has its uh, allies and what the Western media would call its proxies 
um, around the world, including, for example, Hezbollah and the global link of other militias, including, of course, the Houthis in Yemen. And I think what we can expect is perhaps over a period of time, we can see actions covert and overt taken against U.S. allies, such as Saudi Arabia. Uh, we saw um, uh, an attack which Iran denied, but which it certainly would have had advance notice of if not taking part in on the Saudi refining facilities in the middle of last year, which, of course, showed that just with one attack, you can knock out uh, a large proportion of the refining capability. And if that was to be sustained, that would massively, of course, increase the price of oil, which, again, could have a devastating effect on the West's economies, as indeed other people around the world. Similarly, they have the ability to close, for example, the Straits of Hormuz, to control the Gulf of, um, of the Persian Gulf, which, again, could restrict oil supplies. And indeed, that's why the British uh, are saying that they've sent these two warships there. Two warships which, if they remain independent of American control, uh, may have a chance of avoiding becoming involved in a conflict. Of course, the Americans are desperate to show that they have allies because they have so few in this situation that they will put great pressure on Britain to combine their patrols with the American naval patrols, which, of course, will then bring Britain uh, into that target zone. So it's, as you say, a highly dangerous inflammatory situation, and uh, not just for the U.S., but also for those allies uh, that it has, those that haven't disassociated themselves mm. from it. And Britain is, is key of those. Well, finally, on that point, Charles, and I'm grateful for <coughs> your time, uh, the uh, British diplomatic silence uh, for the first two days uh, was uh, telling and referred to implicitly, explicitly actually, by Mike Pompeo that the European allies, uh, including Britain, had not been supportive enough. Uh, Boris Johnson has now made, uh, finally, a statement, uh, quite an inflammatory one in my view. Uh, will Britain be able to or want to remain neutral uh, in all of this? Or are we going to start the Brexit era as the uh, 51st state of the United States of America? Well, you know, George, I've been on your phone before and I've mentioned this, that I think in the post-Brexit world, certainly in the short term, uh, and again, this isn't necessarily an argument for or against Brexit, I would point out before becoming involved in that discussion, but I would say that it's absolutely clear that Britain, uh, I think, fears post-Brexit isolation. I think they uh, have put, especially Boris Johnson has put a lot of store on having good relationships with the United States, including his often, uh, he's often talking about his trade deal and so on, despite the problems that that might bring. And therefore, I think Britain at this particular time, the last thing, not Britain wants to do, but that this government wants to do, is alienate itself from uh, the United States uh, at a time when its ties with Europe are, are loosening. And this is at a time when uh, relationship between Europe and America generally are deteriorating precisely because of these kind of actions that America has taken. We've got a situation now where Iran has now fully or appears to be fully withdrawing from the nuclear deal that the European powers, including Britain, have struggled to keep alive since uh, the US uh, unilaterally withdrew from it and reneged on it. And so you've got a situation now where Britain is kind of almost like rudderless, in, in my view, on the international stage. They're being drawn towards America simply because of the rejection of Europe. Of course, it doesn't mean to say because you're not part of Europe or the EU that you can't uh, side with European uh, politicians or governments on these kind of issues. It's, it's really clear that I think you've got, um, uh, unfortunately, it's very similar to the situation. I'm, I haven't uh, heard what you said on this specific aspect, but I'm sure you probably have thought about this in the same way that when the situation with Iraq 13, uh, 17 years was developing, 
indeed at about the same time of year. Remember, the invasion took place, I think, in March yep. 2003. In the run-up to that, we were having exactly the same situation where a lot of false information was being put out by the US and UK government, and the UK government was doing everything it could to actually uh, be supportive of the US at the very same time that had it pulled its true diplomatic weight, because let's face it, America in that also didn't have very many allies, or, or not very many uh, powerful allies, had Britain pulled its weight at that time, they might have persuaded the US to have pulled back instead of, of course, Tony Blair actually encouraging George Bush to, to attack Iraq with all of the horrific consequences that we've seen for Iraqis, for Europeans, and indeed Americans since then in terms of terror and so on. And I think there are parallels with this particular time. And I think it's extremely probably unhelpful to have the British government, which is a close ally of the US, actually now coming out and saying, we will stand firm with you because it will simply give sucker to the American side and discourage them from pulling back. And I think the consequences for the US and the UK, not necessarily will be, but could be uh, potentially disastrous. And I'm sure that in the end, the Iranians will actually actually come to a, a, a negotiated deal in respect to this, but they will exact a very heavy price. And really, given what's happened to them, it's not really surprising that that's the case. If it happened to us or to the United States, what the Americans have done, we absolutely would not just sit back and uh, mm. accept some kind of deal and offer that uh, Trump is now belatedly hoping that the Iranians will accept. Forgive me, one last question, Charles. Uh, <coughs> the nuclear deal dead and buried now, does that mean Iran will produce a, a nuclear bomb? If I were them, I certainly would. Uh, but that would displease some of their own friends. Russia and China don't want Iran to develop a, a nuclear bomb. Uh, but if I was running Iran, I, I'd tell my scientists to get one uh, on my desk, so to speak, uh, uh, yesterday. Yeah, of course, this can't be developed overnight. Um, and indeed, uh, as even the atomic, uh, International Atomic Agency has confirmed that uh, Iran hasn't had a, a nuclear weapons program for very, very many years, despite the constant um, allegations of Netanyahu and others that, that it has done. But nonetheless, um, so they're not going to be able to produce something overnight. But you're absolutely right. The, the message that this sends, um, this attack, uh, this, uh, if you like, an American assertion of its uh, 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 extraterritorial um, uh, uh, jurisdiction to, to carry out attacks like this and just kill uh, members of foreign governments at will, um, it sends a very clear message. And the message, I think, is pretty much the same message that uh, the attack on Libya, the attack on Iraq also sent. That, that is that if you want to avoid these kind of situations, if you want to have President Trump not attacking you and also other American governments not attacking you but coming to your door to negotiate with you, you need to be like Korea. You need to have weapons of mass destruction. And that, of course, is the most unhelpful message that could be sent. And that indeed may be one of the main long-term ramifications of this. Would um, that attack on this general have taken place if Iran has had nuclear or other weapons of mass destruction? And many people around the world, many governments and many future governments will come to the conclusion that given the risk of escalation to a nuclear incident that could take place, they will suspect that the only way to protect themselves from this kind of uh, American uh, use and abuse of its power is indeed to obtain their own WMDs. I suspect the nuclear deal is dead for now, but we can hope that given that I think behind the scenes, although there are some in America that want war because um, uh, some officials and some in Saudi Arabia and some in Israel because they see it as a means of uh, affecting the regime change in uh, Iran, um, they 
I think nonetheless, um, and most people in government, and you mentioned the Pentagon officials earlier, in America and certainly in Iran and elsewhere, don't want a full war to result. The problem is when you get into the cycle of escalation that America has absolutely initiated here, it's difficult to control. We look back to World War One and World War um, and other wars, and you can see exactly yeah. that scenario in progress. Where can people read your excellent article, Charles? Uh, it's on the American um, Herald Tribune site, but it's also on my um, Twitter feed. It's on there. You can have a look at that. It's a fairly long article, but it was written um, shortly after the incident happened, and it's covered so far pretty much that's going on. And um, you can. Um, and uh, the, the problem is, though, George, when you read the article, you'll think, "Yeah, but this was obvious. This was obvious. This was obvious." And indeed, for anybody that's been uh, paying attention, those results were obvious. Yeah. And, uh, Unfortunately, not that many people, people pay attention until it's too late. Exactly. Charles Shoebridge, all-round expert, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. The poll is uh, a record number so far. Virtually 4,000 people have voted. Uh, what should Boris Johnson do next? A, back Trump at 24%, that's up one. B, oppose Trump, 48%, that's down one. And C, remain neutral, 28%, no change. So uh, half the people uh, listening, watching and responding think we should either back Trump or remain neutral. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. Now for the regular weekly feature on this day. On this day in 1952, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill arrived in New York on the Queen Mary on a mission to renew the special relationship between Britain and the United States that had certainly had its bumpy moments down the years, not least now with President Trump's government claiming Britain has not been supportive enough over the killing of General Soleimani. At the end of Churchill's visit, both governments issued a communique saying they had complete identity of aims in the Middle East. That was demonstrated most recently when in 2003, when the British Prime Minister Tony Blair supported George W. Bush's war against Iraq, and we all know how that ended. But by the way, just four years after that Churchill meeting uh, in the United States, when they identified uh, absolute identity of aims, the United States refused to support the British, French, and Israeli invasion of Egypt in the Suez War. The so-called Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, appeared in court on this day in 1981. His reign of terror lasted from 1976 to 1981, in which time he murdered 13 women in the north of England and tried to murder seven more. He said he was driven by messages from God. In May of 1981, he was driven to prison to begin a life sentence of no less than 30 years. He's still there, thankfully. Ah, messages from God. Didn't Tony Blair and George W. Bush say they got those messages too before they killed a rather larger number of people in Iraq? Forgive me if you think that's tasteless. In 2001, a report on the former GP, that's general practitioner for U.S. viewers and listeners, a family doctor, Dr. Harold Shipman, revealed that he had killed a minimum of 236 patients in England, possibly more than 300, by poisoning them. He was convicted and given a life sentence. Three years later, in 2004, he was found hanging in his cell 
in Franklin Jail, County Durham. 300 of his patients poisoned by their family doctor. This was the week also in 1971 on New Year's Day when 66 spectators died at a football match between Rangers and Celtic at Ibrox Park in Glasgow. The tragedy happened on stairway 13 of the stadium. An inquiry later concluded that the crush was caused by the downward force of so many fans leaving at the same time. The traditional fixture has not been played on a New Year's Day since. It was also on New Year's Day in 1991 that serial killer Fred West, charged with 13 murders, was found hanged in his cell in Winston Green Prison in Birmingham. His wife Rose was later convicted of nine murders and she remains in prison. There's not a lot of joy here historically, that's for sure, but I wish a very happy birthday to one of my favorite actors, Robert Duval, who was born on this day in 1931. It was Duval in Apocalypse Now, the Vietnam War epic, who spoke the classic line, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. It smells like victory. Well, we now know it was actually the scent of defeat. Thanks to my friends through the glass who produced on this day. The poll is still rattling on. You can vote on my Twitter feed, but let's take some calls. Uh, Bobby is an Iranian-American and wants to talk about Iran, and he's most welcome. Bobby, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going, Mr. Galloway? All good. Nice to hear from you, sir. What would you like to say? Uh, first off, I'd like to say I, I love your show. Uh, I just fell on it watching, uh, you know, RT. And Thank uh, you. you have very uh, informative information on there. And uh, you bring up ex excellent points. Thanks, Paul. And uh, I just wanted to add, um, I mean, there's a lot of uh, questions that uh, uh, none of us can figure out what's happening. And we... We're a little confused by this whole mess because in the beginning, he said his whole campaign, Trump said his whole campaign was based on ending endless wars. Yeah. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And, and we're falling back into one that uh, could be potentially catastrophic. Um, so we're at a, uh, pretty much a stalemate in a situation where everybody is showboating on who's going to murder more than the other one. So it's a very sticky situation. And my main question is that, uh, Iran has been, uh, pretty much been forced to, to be, the Iran that it is now because of pressure, in my opinion. If it was able to to freely uh, conduct its business like a, like a country is supposed to, 
it, it wouldn't feel this type of uh, this pressure that it needs to add to the to the outside of Iran. So I just don't understand how they cannot manage uh, going bypassing sanctions or or maybe cutting deals with other countries. It seems like they have a lot of allies, but uh, I feel like if, if they were able to do that, we wouldn't be in this situation. Well, quite so, and Iran has been facing that, of course, much longer than the life of the Islamic Republic. I mentioned earlier yeah. the uh, willful destruction of the democratic government of Mossadegh in 1953 uh, by yeah. Britain and the United States. Uh, in uh, yeah. in uh, the um, one of the foulest acts uh, ever performed in the Middle East, and it seems that uh, the United States, in particular, has a blind spot so far as Iran is concerned. The Europeans, including even the British, were quite happy uh, opening up to Iran, and Iran opening up to them, uh, making the nuclear deal and so on. Uh, but it's your country or the country in which you are a citizen, uh, that, uh, that is determined upon breaking uh, Iran. And it's my case, and your call is a bit of a case in point, uh, that this is actually bringing all the Iranians together. Am I right about that? Um, I mean, it, 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 bringing them together is one thing. I mean, they have really no choice. Either they, they, they alienate the country and, and, uh, and uh, the media destroys them, which they're already doing an amazing job of, or, or they, uh, they band together like, uh, like a group has to. Very interesting, Bobby, and very good of you to call. Uh, God save Iran, and, uh, and uh, I'm grateful to you for adding to the debate this evening. That was Bobby an Iranian-American on the situation in Iran. Now, Caleb Mopan is my favorite American broadcaster. He's my colleague on RT America. He's a speaker, he's a writer, and he's a political analyst. And he joins me now. I don't know if it's on Skype. It is. Caleb, welcome again to the show. I'd like to wish you a happy new year, but it would seem rather incongruous in the uh, circumstances. I saw... Uh, pictures of anti-war activity all over the United States, very big demonstrations, very quick off the mark. What would you, how would you calibrate the state of public opinion uh, on this uh, whole crisis right now in the U.S.? Well, there has been widespread denunciation of Trump's move to kill Qasem Soleimani even from some of the most mainstream foreign policy voices in the United States. Uh, we recently saw the director of the Atlantic Council, uh, certainly not an anti-imperialist organization, but we saw the director of the Atlantic Council speaking very, very harshly and arguing that this is going to hurt the influence of the United States in the Middle East in the long run. Um, what's quite interesting and important to point out here is the way I see it, there is a longstanding division in U.S. politics between the military-industrial complex and the manufacturers and the CIA intelligence soft power apparatus uh, and big oil companies. And what has been very, very clear, if you listen to voices of that kind of big oil Eastern establishment in the United States that favors soft power, is that when Trump killed Qasem Soleimani, he basically ended 
any soft power opportunities for the United States in the Middle East, right? No one is going to trust the United States any longer. We remember the nuclear deal and all over the world, people are looking at this and saying, this is a result of the fact that Iran negotiated with the United States, made huge concessions to the United States at the negotiating table, and then was stabbed in the back, right? And that, that the credibility of the United States as a negotiator, as a soft power entity is over. It's very similar to the fallout, what happened in Libya, where Gaddafi had negotiated with the United States, and look how that ended up. And now Iran, that made huge concessions, has been completely stabbed in the back. This ruins the credibility of the United States in the region. Uh, many mainstream voices in U.S. politics feel like this has gone too far. Now, uh, the, the liberals uh, have flip-flopped around in uh, recent years, so-called progressives, even some leftists. Uh, who've been denouncing Trump for not making war enough, particularly in Syria, but also in relation to Russia and the Ukraine and so on. Uh, they seem to have flopped again. Uh, the, the Liberati are uh, out in full voice denouncing uh, Trump for this action. How, how, do we, uh, how do we analyze that? Well, there are different factions within America's uh, economic ruling class. Uh, Trump is very closely aligned with certain interests. If you look at who's funding PragerU, which is one of the, the big YouTube channels that promotes Trump's ideas. If you look at who's funding Turning Points USA, which is a, a group promoting Donald Trump on college campuses, you'll see Bernie Marcus, who's the owner of Home Depot, which is a hardware store chain that's been putting small hardware stores across the United States out of business. If you go to any Home Depot, uh, all the products on the shelves come from military contracting corporations. Who else is funding Trump activism in the United States? You've got Betsy DeVos and the DeVos Foundation. And Betsy DeVos, her brother is Eric Prince of Blackwater, the military contracting corporation. You've got Sheldon Adelson, who is a big supporter of the Likud party. And between all of these entities, and let me add the fracking companies that are having trouble paying back their loans, between all of them, they favor an escalation with Iran to shoot the oil prices up, to help Netanyahu, who's in trouble in Israel, um, and to make money for weapons manufacturers. Whereas the big oil establishment in the United States favored a different strategy. Under Obama, we saw a strategic oil price drop. Uh, we saw soft power negotiations. We saw kind of a building up of the reformist movement and elements in Iran that were more favorable to negotiations with the United States. It's a difference in strategy. That's essentially the difference here. The military industrial complex likes to blow things up and have big wars and make lots of money. And the big oil apparatus favors a long-term strategy that's more managerial, pushing soft power and maneuvering to bring down geopolitical rivals of the United States. And when Trump uh, carried out this move, he essentially ruined any, any hope of a soft power strategy against Iran. The richest of the rich in the United States see this as completely blowing to bits their, their, their strategy of gradually bringing down and fomenting unrest in Iran, maybe having a color revolution. They, they see that as, as completely over here. This is a battle of strategies. And the military industrial complex, uh, the Likud party in Israel, the fracking companies that want that oil price up as high as they possibly can, they seem to have won out here when Donald Trump took this move. Saudi Arabia is a big winner here too, right? Saudi Arabia um, at this point is seeing Trump uh, take out uh, you know, the leader of one of their biggest rivals. Um, 
you know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS forces that tried to kill Soleimani on so many occasions failed to do it. But now we've got the White House doing what Al-Qaeda and ISIS couldn't do. Uh, it's quite a dramatic moment here. But many of these supporters of Donald Trump uh, from the, like, the rank and file of some of the new right wing movements that have emerged in the United States aren't exactly thrilled with this. Sure, you have a flood of people who never even heard of Qasem Soleimani, who know nothing about this on Twitter, hearing that Trump killed some terrorist and they're cheering, you know, and all of that. But a lot of the more ideological folks within the Trump camp are very furious because they see this as a complete repudiation of what they voted for Trump for. Trump said America first. He ran on a platform of, of isolationism. And he seems to be on the brink of getting us into a whole new big war with a country that's much bigger than Iraq, much bigger than Libya, much stronger than Afghanistan. Uh, the implications of this are big. Now, how does this affect and how is it affected by the impeachment game of the Democrats uh, in the House uh, and now presumably one day in the Senate. Well, the thing is, the impeachment forced Trump into a situation where he was extremely dependent on the support of the neoconservative wing of his own party. The Republican senators, most of which do not share Donald Trump's America First outlook, but rather have a neoconservative John Bolton uh, you know, view of the world. Those folks are who Donald Trump is essentially groveling before and begging. If they have his back at an impeachment trial, he's fine. However, if he doesn't please them, if somehow some new information emerges or they just suddenly have a change of heart in the coming months, Trump will be out of office. So you can really interpret this move as Donald Trump kind of quaking in fear and trying to make sure he's got the Saudis on his side, trying to make sure he's got Likud in Israel on his side, and trying to make sure he's got the neocon wing of his own party that was not happy when he fired John Bolton, trying to line up their support as he faces an impeachment. Uh, you, can, you can interpret it very much that way. Uh, this is not a, a bold, heroic move, as some of Trump's supporters have liked to portray it. This is really Trump backing and kind of cowering in fear and desperately trying to hold on to the support of the neocons. Now, in the Democratic camp, uh, how will this all play out? As I saw it, only Bernie Sanders unequivocally denounced uh, the Trump action. The others, uh, you know, flanneled about a bit uh, uh, on the one hand, but on the other. But Sanders was quite forthright, wasn't he? Indeed, Sanders was very, very critical. And we have heard denunciations of the move from a lot of mainstream Democrats. However, they, they always, you know, pre, uh, pre beforehand say, well, you know, and they repeat all the allegations against Qasem Soleimani in U.S. media now, claiming that somehow he's responsible for the deaths of U.S. soldiers in Iraq when the yeah. IEDs were largely planted by Sunnis exactly. and extremists. They, and, and they never explain that. I, I, every time yeah. I see that on Twitter, I say, what were these crimes, please? And nobody has, nobody has ever responded. Indeed, it's just taken as fact. Democrats, Republicans just repeat these allegations about Qasem Soleimani, someone who heroically battled ISIS, had a huge record of defending Christians in Syria, defending Christians in Iraq, defending religious minorities, fighting against the ISIL Wahhabi extremist element. Somehow they're trying to paint him as if he's another bin Laden. Um, but the reality is that's simply not the case. What is interesting also is that, you know, in this age in the United States where, you know, on our university campuses, young people are being taught that there is no truth, uh, that right and wrong are all just kind of a matter of opinion. 
um, that, that this age of pessimism, where people are basically being told to not be optimistic about the future. If you look at the life of Qasem Soleimani, and I'm not going to endorse everything he ever said or did, but if you look at his life, he very much incarnates a lot of the values that Americans are longing for, honor, sacrifice, martyrdom, martial virtue, these kind of values that are missing in U.S. society as we enter this age of postmodernism. Um, it, it, it's, it's quite interesting uh, that to see that now they are trying to rewrite history and make him into the kind of people he fought against. Let's remember this. Qasem Soleimani saved the lives of thousands of Christians in Syria. He saved the lives of thousands of Christians in Iraq. I mean, he was very much you know, a champion for people that were downtrodden and oppressed. He also, apparently, from what I understand, at, at different points was willing to sit down with the United States and cooperate with them in places like Afghanistan, in Iraq, immediately after the U.S. invasion. So they're just completely rewriting the record here and giving Saudi Arabia, a country that is the homeland of Osama bin Laden, where the bin Laden family is one of the richest, you know, has a state monopoly on construction, basically giving them a blank pass, overlooking the 28 pages of the 9-11 Commission report, and then trying to rewrite all the history of the Middle East to make Qasem Soleimani and the Islamic Republic of Iran responsible for the crimes of the people that they have fought against. Yeah, absolutely. I've got some breaking news, Caleb. In the last few minutes, Donald Trump has said the U.S. could act disproportionately if Iran targets any American person or target in revenge for the killing of Soleimani. The U.S. president tweeted, of course, after Tehran vowed to avenge the death of the general. Uh, Trump wrote, these media posts will serve as notification to the United States Congress that should Iran strike any U.S. person or target, the U.S. will quickly and fully strike back, and perhaps in a disproportionate manner. Such legal notice is not required, but is given nevertheless. What do you think he means by that, Caleb? Well, this sounds like another cowardly statement from a man who realizes that when Iran responds, which they most likely will, there will be thousands of people, not just all over the world, but there will be millions of people in the United States who won't blame Iran for it, but will blame Trump for, you know, does he expect, does he really expect that he can kill the top general, the, the hero of the Islamic Republic of Iran and not get a response? And there are gonna be many people who whatever response Iran gives, won't just say, oh, Iran is evil, but will actually blame Donald Trump for escalating the situation completely unnecessarily and putting American lives in danger. And I think he realizes that, and he's trying to hold off, trying to, to stop the tidal wave or the avalanche that he himself started. This is, this is the sorcerer's apprentice, losing control of his own creation. Well, I think that's a good point to end it. Uh, brilliant words. Thank you very much, Caleb Mopan, uh, writer, analyst, speaker, very good speaker too, and my colleague at RT America. I'm on RT America every day, by the way. Monday to Friday at 5 o'clock London time with Manila Chan on the In Question uh, program. The poll is uh, not yet updated. I'll bring it to you when it, uh, when it is. But uh, the volume of emails and so on is quite enormous. Dennis says, I heard Keir Starmer say that the Remain issue is dead in the water. When did he have this Damascene conversion? As far as I recall, all of three weeks ago, he was twisting Jeremy Corbyn's arm and forcing him to promise an undeliverable new referendum. Well, more fool Corbyn 
for allowing him to twist his arm, Dennis. Happy New Year, George, though current events may portend otherwise. What do you think is behind the president's threat against 52 target sites to include cultural sites, presumably mosques? Of course, the provisions uh, of uh, justice are routinely breached, but the uh, Geneva Convention doesn't that immediately isolate the allies, says Will in Singapore. He asks P.S., how do you take your tea? Often, black, no sugar. Thanks, Will. Uh, Gokan from Sydney, Australia, says, I'd just like to say, as much as Iran wants to hit the U.S. back, it really can't do much more than what it has been doing to the U.S. before. Another thing is that Soleimani was responsible for the deaths of protesters during the riots when Iran raised fuel prices. The official figure of the dead was 300-plus, but later, people, which people, were saying the number of dead was roughly 1,500. I don't understand how people can adore this general so much. If I was Persian living in Iran, I would resent this man so much. I do understand the impact he had on ISIS, and for that I give him credit. Well, looking at the streets of Iran today, uh, two things, Gokan, strike me. The first is that any idea of regime change is moonshine. Uh, this is a regime that is very firmly in the saddle, whatever you or I think of it. And secondly, the idea, uh, as Trump himself and Pompeo said, that the uh, Iranians would be secretly glad for the killing of Soleimani is quite obvious nonsense. Uh, Tony says, February the 11th is the anniversary of the Islamic Revolution. They may wait until then. David in Birmingham says Tehran has always been a jewel in the crown, aim for the US. I hope cool heads prevail in this situation, but I doubt if this dangerous theater will be anything cool. You and me both. George Reed in Clackmannan uh, says, I've not always agreed with you, but your analysis on Iran is spot on. Yet again, this is about oil. America is a huge consumer, slavering at Iran's oil resources. The US wants to provoke a war so it can again seize hold free of that country's oil reserves. They interfered in 1953, and here they are doing the same again. Are you the George Reed uh, from Clackmannan? If so, uh, I send you my greetings and fond memories of our time together in Geneva, I think it was. Dear George, who's been praying and begging for the US to attack Iran for years? Whose political career is now hanging by a thread. Who will be cheering at this news? Is it really possible that Netanyahu has had nothing to do with motivating the strike against Soleimani? By the way, we've learned this week that Ghislaine Maxwell is hiding in Israel. Join the dots, watch you every week. No other UK media gets closed. All the best, Paul in London. Thanks for that, uh, Paul. Now, all of the foregoing is true. Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean it's an Israeli decision. Uh, the tail never wags the dog. The dog is the United States. Israel is the tail. The poll is closing. Uh, at uh, It's closed now at 5,000 votes. 24% uh, of you think we should back Trump here in Britain. 47% uh, of you think we should oppose Trump. And 29% of you think we should remain uh, neutral. There were 5,263 votes cast.
Grumbleweed says on Twitter, Boris should appeal directly to Iran not to overreact, just like we didn't over the Russian nerve gas. We might have some influence with Iran, as we're still in the non-proliferation nuclear deal, therefore not imposing extra sanctions. And uh, Phil says he won't oppose. That's why they backed him to win the leadership. Funny how it all pans out in the end. Two liars elected and the war for oil continues. And useful idiot says, as an American, I'd appreciate Bojo's help in arresting Trump and holding him in Belmarsh prison indefinitely. It appears that international laws do not matter anymore. And Steve says, we already have warships doing escort duty. They'll be as useful as a, a Madison Avenue escort uh, if the balloon goes up. Will Carpenter says, my response, a prince is also much respected, but he is either a true friend or a downright enemy. In other words, when he declares himself without any reservation in favor of one party against the other, this will always be more favorable than remaining neutral. A quote from Machiavelli, of course. Phil says we have enough problems. Boris should do the minimum to support the USA and keep the hell out of it thereafter. And Terry Sparrow says nobody is defending Soleimani as a saint, far from it. However, I think the USA should finally accept that they can't have the whole planet in their image. Thanks for that, uh, Terry, and uh, I'll try to get through some of the other hundreds of messages that have been brought to me in the course of the show. Adam has drawn stumps and retired to the pavilion. Musical differences have sundered us, but I want to say how much I enjoyed working with him these last 28 weeks. He's been with us right from the start. Indeed, Adam may be the only man on the planet who has listened to every single episode of the mother of all talk shows since 2006, January of 2006. Now, 14 years ago, and I know that he's listening and maybe even watching also uh, tonight. So I want to thank him for that. I'm glad there is no acrimony between us, just, as I say, creative musical differences. Uh, I don't know if we'll uh, try to replace him. Maybe the cleverest woman in England might step forward. Any volunteers, uh, let us uh, know. Now, I've got lots of calls, but I need to read some of this social media. Jeffrey uh, never called in Glasgow, the gutless coward. Uh, he wasn't hard enough uh, after all. Stuart in West London says, I believe the last thing Trump and his support base want coming up to the 2020 presidential elections is another devastating war in the Middle East. I say that President Trump is being held hostage by the military industrial complex and the deep state. Not so, Stuart. The deep state tried to stop him doing this. We can't keep... Uh, developing our uh, conspiracy theories to exculpate uh, Donald Trump. He did this. He chose this option. The deep state advised him against it, but he did it anyway. And whether or not he wants a devastating war in the Middle East, he's going to now get one. Kath says, thanks for telling everything like it is. Thank you, Kath. Uh, Billy from Islington. Billy, you get my drift, from Islington, says, Mr. Galloway is a member of the Socialist Workers' Party and an ardent Remainer. I was a bit shocked to see you drinking your tea out of a Union Jack mug last Sunday. I have to question your loyalty to the anti-imperialist cause. It was only a joke, Billy, and quickly uh, replaced. 
but you keep waving yours. Uh, Tom says, hello, I was, uh, well, not only has Trump acted like a complete fool with Iran, apparently, according to some recent news, his government has also recently upped the sanctions on Cuba. Is this man trying to annoy and aggravate everyone in the world? Well, that's already happened, I think, Tom. Uh, Constance says American foreign policy actions are beginning to resemble Israeli actions in the Gaza Strip, Murder Incorporated. And Stephen McCandless says, do nice people believe in revenge? Don't go that low, Iran, please. My goodness, Steve, what do you think they are? Saints. Uh, Zoxilix, Zoxilix says in capital letters, it's always a giveaway, Iran is a false flag attack. Yeah, right. David says, US and Iran situation, not our circus, not our clowns. We have our own house to put in order, keep well out of it. And Summer Winds says, the reckless move wasn't Trump killing Soleimani. The reckless move was Soleimani attacking a United States embassy. Except he didn't, but don't let the facts get in the way. You'll see just what the reckless move was in the next days and weeks. Jane A says, I think Bojo will do a Theresa May and hide. And Omar says, opposing Trump is the only solution to peaceful coexistence in the Middle East. When has there ever been peaceful coexistence in the Middle East, Omar? Innocent says, if he does denounce the violence, Trump, uh, Boris, that is, his approval ratings would shoot through the ceiling. If he does, it'll be a win-win situation for all. And Tim says, I think he should seriously consider a week in the Maldives. It's lovely at this time of the year. Wish I could have a week in the Maldives, Tim. And Joss says UK isn't neutral with Julian Assange, so why would they start now? And Stuart Brennan says Boris the Spider Johnson should condemn the US murder of Soleimani, but he will not, simply because the UK and USA are tied together by economic and military strings. War crimes are their business. Let's hear from Angelo in Salford, in Manchester. Go um, ahead, Angelo. Hi. George, hi. Yeah, good. Hi, nice Mr. to hear from you. Go on. And you, yeah, um, I've seen the stick that you've had to go through over the years just because, you know, your opinion didn't suit their narrative. Mm. You was a friend of Saddam Hussein. You said to people, look, don't go to war. We had the Pope, one of the best popes, John Paul, said, don't go to war. Years later, millions of people dead, children, innocent people, all for a false... You know, false thing. No, no um, weapons of mass destruction. No chemicals. No even missiles with the capabilities to, to to be a threat. Now we've been sold this lie and lie again. Now the only reason Iran is more of a threat is because we bought this kind of fear factor in, fear mongering again. Oh, they have an air force. Right. Okay. It's not bigger than the U.S. military, my friend. They do not have the same amount of aircraft that can detonate bombs on you. 20, 30 years ago, the Americans were working on the B-32 bomber, stealth bomber, going over radar with their diesel covered in it. People thought it was UFOs. Right. If that was happening 30, 40 years ago, my friend, what do you think they've got up their sleeve now, okay? Well, there's no doubt, uh, Angelo, uh, let me correct one thing. Yeah, okay. uh, I, okay. I, I, I met Saddam Hussein twice in my life, once okay. for uh, 50 seconds with 50 mm -hmm. other people. And yep. on the uh, second last occasion, uh, in August of 2002, 
when I successfully appealed to him to allow the arms inspectors back into yeah, yeah. Iraq. Right, yeah. More yeah. fool me and more fool yeah. him for uh, agreeing uh, with yeah. what I had to say. Uh, so sure. I was not a friend of Saddam Hussein, although that allegation doesn't quite have the sting it used to have, given what's yeah. happened in Iraq since uh, Britain and America overthrew him. Uh, but the, the, the point that you're making is an obvious yeah. one. The United States is enormously more po powerful than Iran, but Iran is enormously more powerful than any of the wars that America has fought since the Second World War. Much more powerful than Vietnam, much more powerful than Korea, much more powerful than Afghanistan, than Iraq, uh, any of the places that the U.S. has bombed and missiled. Uh, Iran has the ability to punch back and it has the motivation to do so. And it doesn't have to do much to bring about incalculable damage. The, it, only has to, it only has to set the Straits of Hormuz on fire, which it can do in an instant, and no oil will pass through it. And that's uh, a quarter nearly of the oil that is needed in the world, particularly in the European economies. It only has to land six missiles on the oil refinery capacity of Saudi Arabia, and there'll yeah. be no more exports from Saudi Arabia. Ditto yeah, the Emirates, ditto Qatar. They can do all of that. That's yeah. my point. Yeah, but my point is that's close proximity fighting back, right? They will probably attack the Americans like a chessboard, the pawns being the weakest pieces. So borders that are supporting that heavy military base by US, our UK um, embassies, American mm. embassies, they'll take these out first. But what I'm saying to you... That is, is, that, that is a possibility. I don't agree with it, uh, but Charles seemed to be agreeing with you. But that would yeah. look sneaky, you see. I don't believe that Iran will lose its dignity by having proxies uh, landing small arms on unimportant American targets. I believe well, that, that Iran will choose a prestige American target and directly hit it itself. That's my well, analysis. Go on. My opinion, and it's a researched opinion, right? There's been talk about the next war will be between the Americans and the Iranians. So I said, let me go on YouTube, and it wasn't just some Tom Dick and Harry talking about it, it was official data, right? They compared weapon for weapon, plane for plane, ship for ship, blah, blah, blah. If Iran even thinks about sending a nuclear weapon, it will get him... No, they don't have... No, no, Angelo, they don't have nuclear weapons, so park that. No, 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 no there's talk that they... they no, there's do, no talk. Well, this is the problem with people mm. whose idea of research is YouTube. Uh, Iran yeah, has no nuclear YouTube, weapons. Iran, Angelo, Iran has no nuclear weapons. Iran has no... No, because you're talking right. nonsense. I'm I'm Iraq, Iraq has you know, no nuclear know. weapons. Angelo, stop talking for see. a minute and I'll let you back in. Iran has no nuclear weapons. This is attested to by every government in the world. But it does have a significant ballistic missile capability, capable of doing dramatic damage in Saudi Arabia, in Qatar, in the United Arab Emirates, even in Israel, if they decided to do so. That they do have. Go ahead, Angelo. No, I'm done hard, right? I'll go before reading this, and you, you know this quote, and you can't deny this quote. Right, 
you can't fight a gold snake, it's invisible, right? And when we went to a war with Iraq, what did a Muslim quote once say? Yeah? You attack us from the sky, you don't fight on the ground, right? You are cowards. We enjoy death more than life itself. Well, I That's don't know who said that, but uh, uh, I'm cutting quote, you off now. I'm cutting you off now because uh, a little knowledge is dangerous and you're definitely in possession of a little knowledge. It is undoubtedly the case that one option open to Iran is irregular guerrilla action, maybe by proxies uh, in far off places in Kenya or uh, Argentina or uh, around the world where US interests and assets proliferate. That is one option open to Iran. But that would lack the dignity of Iran officially striking an American target in the region in retaliation. I believe that's what they will choose. Now, of course, that will invite massive American further retaliation. But one point that you made is correct. Iran and Iranians are well ready to die. For them, dying, fighting the United States of America in defense of the Islamic Republic of Iran is not a matter of regret, but of celebration. Be careful if you're taking on a man who not only has nothing to lose, but is looking forward to losing even their life. Now, it says here I must plug the podcast. You can catch up on the mother of all talk shows anytime, whenever you like. You simply download Moats Podcast, that's hashtag M-O-A-T-S, via your favorite podcast app, Anchor.fm, Spotify, and Google Play. I know nothing, they lost me at uh, podcast. I know nothing about these things, but my wife knows everything about them. And apparently, uh, the podcasts are going like hot cakes. So if you want the podcast, that's how you do it. You download the hashtag Moats podcast on Anchor.fm, Spotify, and Google Play. Let's go to Seattle and hear from Danny. Go ahead, Danny. Hey, hello, George. Nice to hear from you. Go ahead. Well, uh, I'm calling about uh, just the situation. I, I just feel so upset uh, watching uh, Trump the last uh, few weeks uh, with the uh, the uh, you know evangelicals praying over him and and uh, saying he's uh, you know uh, Jesus. I don't know. It's, well, I saw, it's just crazy. I saw, I'll tell you what I saw, Danny. I saw a group of evangelicals literally quivering as they caressed him. And he stood in the middle of them, beaming broadly, uh, looking like a, a big palooka uh, that is being treated like Jesus. It, it makes you wonder, uh, some of the people in the United States. I, I had seven death threats from the United States on my Facebook messages that I opened last night. There are a lot of nutters in your country, Danny. 
That's exactly right. You're exactly right, Georgia. I mean, not. I live in the state of Washington, which you may know is uh, quite liberal. Yeah. Uh, at least on the uh, at least on the west side, there's a mountain range in the middle, mm. and on the east side, we have the uh, you know the crazy uh, representative Shea, who's running. Uh, uh, you know, is waiting for to create some sort of biblical army to take on the uh, you know the gay people and. Uh, you know, all the other sort of stereotypical nonsense. Yeah. Uh, but I, I they're, they're all mad for Trump, but, I mean, there's a number of them, a lot of them, but not that many. Uh, the vast majority of U.S. citizens are not like that. Uh, and no. uh, some of Trump's own base that believed him when he said he wouldn't start any new wars, now that he started one, uh, must be in danger of deserting him, don't you think? Well, I think at least the, the people on the fringes, uh, you know, that aren't uh, aren't so embedded, but some are pretty fanatical. Uh, like I agree with your assessment, though, that it's, uh, most Americans, uh, you know, are are hardworking people who just want to get by. Unfortunately, they've uh, they've turned us into a sort of a new feudalism state where uh, young people. I'm 72 years old, George. Mm, you I, you don't know, sound I was, it, mate. I, uh, uh, you know, I was a labor union guy. I, I had a job uh, for 25 years where I went to work every day, uh, you know, eight hours a day. And, uh, and, and, and so this area is gone in America. The labor unions have been decimated. And uh, uh, they're starting to come back with the help of uh, Senator Sanders in a lot of cases, uh, who's been uh, walking a lot of picket lines for 50 years. But uh, he's not a you know, newcomer. This but, might uh, George help, uh, Danny. This might help, Bernie. Don't you think? Uh, can you say that again, George? Yeah, the, what Trump has done uh, may very well help Bernie as the only clearly anti-war uh, candidate running for the nomination, and one who is brave enough to articulate the facts as he did immediately in the aftermath of this attack. Uh, American people might just be looking for a president that really means it when he says he's against endless, useless, pointless, bloody, terrifically expensive wars. You're, you're exactly right, George. There's a, and I think you're right. It might help uh, the Democrat uh, that gets nominated. I hope it's Bernie Sanders. I think Biden... Uh, if Biden is nominated, he will probably be, uh, Trump will make him look like a, a circus dog. And uh, uh, this, you know, it's just bad. But uh, I'm hoping that uh, what comes out of this also is a peace movement in the United States where uh, there was quite a few large marches, uh, surprisingly yeah. enough. Yeah, there yesterday were. I, I saw them. They were, big. they were big. Chicago was massive. Yes. And also in Los Angeles, uh, Jimmy Dore was speaking, and uh, also uh, 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 Abby Martin was there, and uh, her partner, I can forget his name right now, but... Mike, but, yeah, uh, yeah, he he's was, wonderful. Mike is a wonderful, wonderful guy. In fact, I think he organized March, but... Yeah. But anyways, I work for a... Uh, I'm retired. I've been retired for some time. I have a small piece of property, uh, which I live on. I'm very lucky, and... Uh, uh, I work, I volunteer, and I do uh, social media for some uh, progressive uh, uh, 
uh, organizations here in the state. Well, God uh, bless you, know, you. God bless you, Danny. God bless all those that were on those demonstrations so quickly in the United States. And, uh, of course, Mike and Abby, uh, perhaps most especially. And Jimmy Dore, too. Thank you very much indeed. Scott says, Trump thinks he's playing a computer game. And Biker Wolfie says, Johnson will do as he's told, just like the Trump puppet he is. And Dr. Kozik says, Boris should step down and name you as his successor. Thank you, doctor. Topic-wise, anyone who sincerely thinks intervention in the Middle East won't backfire is stupid and shouldn't come anywhere near a governing position. Either that or he's a Raytheon shareholder. That is the tweet of the night, Dr. Dord Kozik. Scott Gray says, doesn't matter what Boris thinks, he will do whatever he's told by the USA like a good little boy. And Wardair says, so many people are detached from reality. We're becoming American. Laugh and joke about the terrible things we do to other nations. Imperialism reinvigorated and actually acceptable to so many. I'm not sure what Boris Johnson says or does matters. Dennis is in Brooklyn. Let's hear from him. Dennis, welcome. Hello, George. How are you? By the grace of God, I'm good. Thanks for calling. Go on. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I love your show so much. Um, I have a question. I was, I was just so confused why Trump would okay this move now because, and I, I don't like Trump. Believe me, I'm, I'm too far to the left for that. But, uh, you know, any American president in the land of neocon bill that doesn't bomb other countries for three years going, okay, I can ride with that. So just when the impeachment seemed to be like he survived the worst of the worst, he, uh, it seemed like his poll ratings yeah. had gone up a little bit. It seemed like the Democrats looked bad. It's almost like why would Assad have gassed his own people in Duma just at the point when the U.S. was about to pull out of there and were defeated? Mm. Why would Trump do this now? And, I, you know, Cal, um, Caleb added some answer to that for me, mm. uh, that maybe it's the pressure from the uh, military-industrial Guys, uh, I know the New York Times had an article that the military-industrial complex uh, is heavily pushing for the impeachment or holding it over Trump's head. So, I, I, you know, I don't know. Do you see is that as a possibility? Well, uh, you, you know, uh, that's what we used to call, Dennis, uh, what we used to call the $64,000 question when $64,000 was worth rather more than it is today. Uh, uh, no, <laughs> no, one, uh, no one can really answer that. It is inexplicable. It was inexplicable to the uh, military officials who put the option in front of him uh, because not only had he declined that option back in June uh, when the American drone was shot down, but uh, George W. Bush had turned it down when it was put before him. Barack Obama had turned it down when it was put before him. That shows how long the murder of Soleimani has been premeditated for those who are balking at my use of the word murder. It's, it's the clearest case of murder uh, you could possibly get. It is a premeditated, right. unlawful killing uh, of a human being, moreover a diplomat, on diplomatic business uh, in, a, in a second country. Uh, so uh, I can't answer that. Caleb gave something of an answer. I never believe that these answers are wholly explained things. Um, he may have imagined uh, that it would uh, divert all attention from the uh, impeachment and might uh, be a vote winner 
Uh, I suspect it's going to be neither. It's going to re-energize mm. the impeachment issue once the full awfulness of what is to come plays out. Uh, and it will almost certainly lose him votes, not win them. Anyone who loves the killing of brown-skinned people, preferably in foreign streets but in your own streets, will do, was already voting for Donald Trump. He hasn't won anybody by this action that wasn't already voting for him, but I suspect he may well have lost a, a considerable number of those that might have. Last word to you, Dennis. Thank you. Uh, I would just say that I wonder if even maybe he wasn't paying attention to who the target was, that maybe he's near the golf course. They gave him this list. And I'm not trying to defend the man. I just I don't understand at this point in time why he would do such a drastic act. I could see if he was being in peace and he wanted a diversion. I, it's just beyond me right now, George. Wag the dog. You remember that film with uh, Al Pacino? You, uh, yeah. you create a foreign war, even a mythical one. Dennis in Brooklyn, thanks for the call. Paul in Nottingham in England. Go ahead, Paul. Hello, good evening, George, and a very happy new year to you, brother. Thank you, my friend. Lovely. George, I'll uh, start off by saying that, uh, you know, uh, Trump, uh, you know, for the last few years, have been talking about regime change in Iran. You know, they know they'll never, ever achieve that. You know, Iran's got a, uh, you know, a religious leadership, and that'd be like, you know, trying to remove the Pope from the Vatican. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, they've got absolutely no chance in doing that. Now, however, they're saying we're not looking for regime change. And yet, you know, to murder, and I call it murder, not killing, but murder, to murder, you know, an Iranian top general is uh, asking for trouble, George. You know, this is how the Americans behave. Yet, if that was any other country doing it, Trump would be the first one to say, oh, you don't do that. That's how dictatorship Well, look, uh, look can you, if, uh, if Soleimani was the number two man in Iran, who's the number two mm. man in the United States? Mike Pence, uh, the vice I'll president. Say, uh, if, uh, I, if, I was going to say Petraeus. Well, no, if, if somebody, if a foreign state murdered, the vice president of the United States. As a matter yeah. of fact, Soleimani was much more important than Mike Pence. But if that happened, I mean, the whole yeah. world would go to war to get yes. justice uh, for that. But yes. there are so yes. many American people and many people here in Britain don't actually look at it that way. Yes, they don't, George. And yet, you know, uh, like you said earlier, um, you know, killing, uh, murdering brown-skinned people in foreign lands. A lot of them it, like know, that. Yeah, a lot of them yeah, like that. It's, it's like the Israelis, you know, when, the Israel, when an Israeli soldier dies, you know, they, they, they go out of the way on the BBC and mainstream uh, news channels like them, like Sky, and say, oh, you know, they'll, they'll describe it as, you know, an IDF soldier murdered. But when it's well, a Palestinian, right. well, the, the, a Syrian, or anybody else... Yeah. The blood of some people is much more valuable than the blood of others. Thanks a lot for that, Paul, Thank in you, Nottingham. Of course, there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's more than one way to approach a crisis like this. Piers Morgan, my old friend, uh, has come up with an imaginative one. He's emailed the show, and uh, it's worth hearing. George, surely any response by Iran will be playing into the hands of the U.S. A response would open the door to full-scale retaliation by the U.S., which is exactly what they want. The best response Iran could have now is a political response rather than an act of aggression.
take legal action against the US and complain through the UN. There will be many reprisals from rogue operatives across the globe. And if the official state response from Iran is nothing, it would make the US look neutered and pathetic. What more could Iran ask? Regards, Piers Morgan. And uh, Madeleine de Maupin is like that wee guy in There Will Be Blood. Mercy. I don't know what that means. Uh, I worked for Raytheon, says David, and I can testify to the individualistic, selfish nature of the rat race. That people are being killed, including innocent people, means nothing to those who need to get ahead of the competition. Trump has demonstrated his contempt for peace. Thank you for all you're doing and your passionate support for democracy and freedom of speech. Thank you for that, David. Uh, now, I said uh, uh, Leonard's uh, one was very funny. Uh, no, Kezai's was very funny, uh, but I couldn't possibly read it out. Uh, Woody Woodpecker says uh, uh, Trump should watch the unified defiance on the streets of Iran. Stop and think before he speaks on the subject again. Abdul is on the line in Seattle. Lots of U.S. calls tonight, and I'm glad for that. Abdul, go ahead. Hey, Mr. Galloway, how you doing? By the grace of God, I'm good. Thank you for calling. What would you like to say? I, I don't. I, I just wanted to uh, add some additional comments on the Iran situation. Yeah, go ahead. Um, you are you're mentioning like legal action Iran can take. What would legal action like? What would that translate to? Like, what would that be? Like UN. Like well, uh, writing letters it, to it, it, it wasn't me. It was uh, Piers Morgan, who is a very big uh, television and journalist oh. <laughs> uh, guy here uh, yeah. in uh, England, and also in America too. Uh, he, yeah, I, I suppose, guy. I suppose what they could do, uh, they could sue the United States government in the courts in Iraq, for example, uh, and they could uh, try to go to the international. Uh, criminal court. The United States refuses to recognize that, uh, but the court could still hear the case if a state actor brought it, and that would be, in this case, uh, Iran. They could ask the Security Council to denounce the uh, murder, uh, though the United States and maybe others would veto uh, that. I don't personally see it as a runner, uh, but uh, Piers is positing it as an alternative to doing something that will bring overwhelming violence back from the United States. So uh, I'm sure it's worth thinking of. Abdul, uh, what's your view? Is it, a, is it a, a proportionate response to react to the murder of the second man in your state to begin a legal um, action in the courts in Baghdad? I think, I think uh, legal action is not going to work because if you, if you kind of just look at the climate of the situation, the nuclear deal being pulled off the table last year and now this escalation, it kind of seemed like the a battle is inevitable. Yeah, I mean, you're right to say that the ripping up of the nuclear deal by Donald Trump is the, is the real basis of all this crisis. Everything was, everything was working. Uh, and uh, Trump, for reasons of his own, uh, decided to kick over the table at which this treaty had been reached, irrespective yeah, of think, all of his allies opposing him. Uh, and everything yeah. that has happened has flowed ineluctably from that. 
Yeah, I think Trump is just like uh, he's just like a manager at McDonald's. You know, I feel like U.S. wanted war; they ran for a long time, and Trump is just the guy to do it at this time. At this time in, well, in as, history, I, you know. You know, I suspect mm -hmm. uh, your country will come to regret it. Abdul in Seattle, thanks for that. Chris is in Colchester in England. Go ahead, Chris. Hi, George. Happy Hi. New Year. Happy New Year. Welcome to the show. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I understand the implications by saying uh, this is uh, an act for Israel, and I know those implications don't exist if you say it's for oil or for Saudi Arabia. Mm. Um, but I think we can't beat around the bush. Um, Israel was briefed before Congress about this. Uh, uh, yeah, they didn't, uh, they didn't uh, tell Boris Johnson or their own no. Congress, but they did tell Netanyahu. Yeah, and uh, Soleimani was on the Israeli hit list. Um, and, and when, uh, you know, when, when uh, Trump got scrapped the Iran deal, um, it, Netanyahu, uh, in the recent election, uh, um, he was uh, boasting about um, getting Trump to scrap it. Sure, and sure. he's got very close ties to the, mm. to the family with, with Kushner. Sure. He slept in Jared Kushner's bed when he stays at the family. So, you know, this is this is not... Jewish people, it's a state, it, you know, so we shouldn't... No, I, look, I don't beat about the bush, Chris. I, I just insist that we beat around the right bush. Uh, and uh, my point was uh, earlier uh, that, of course, uh, Israel has uh, something to gain from this act. Israel is very happy about this act. As you say, Israel was consulted about this act. Uh, but that doesn't mean it was done for Israel. Uh, it's actually much closer to home. It was done in particular, this confrontation with Iran is done for many reasons, one of which is Israel, another of which is uh, Saudi Arabia and the other uh, uh, satrapies around the Persian Gulf. Uh, but the main reason it's done, as Caleb Mopin pointed out earlier, uh, is for domestic American reasons. All I say is um, Israel and the United States are close, very close, couldn't be closer, uh, but one of them is a tail and the other is the dog. And those who insist that Israel is wagging the dog are making a mistake and it leads uh, into some dark places. But thanks for your call. Dave is in Warsaw and uh, he wants to talk about this too. Dave, go ahead. Dave, are you there? Hey, George. Go ahead, but uh, we're not hearing you very well. Uh, do try. Go ahead. Yeah, George. Uh, just calling to say uh, that. You know, I've not got Dave yet. Let me read more of the uh, social media. Uh, Dean Sinclair says Johnson needs to remain neutral. He doesn't yet want to back someone as volatile as Trump, knowing he could do something outrageous at any moment. Also, my preference is for us not to interfere in the Middle East anyway. But also, we can't oppose a man who we are looking to for an almighty trade deal. And James in Dundee says, I know you're always right, but the old firm last met on New Year's Day in 2010-11 and 1994 before that. So the Ibrox disaster has nothing to do with the game not being played on New Year's Day. Jamesy, that's well pointed out. Uh, and you'll uh, recall, if you play it back, I issued the prophylactic 
uh, that the On This Day was compiled by somebody else and not uh, for me. And that somebody else is even now being taken out of the building and relieved of their responsibilities. Tony says, following the call from Bobby, the Iranian-American gentleman, is it the case that Trump, like Corbyn, has simply been worn down by the clique that surrounds him? Corbyn was anti-EU and was turned. Trump stood on the promise to stay out of conflicts and then does this. How difficult is it to lead and be your own man? Well, not for me, Tony. Uh, I wouldn't think it was worth being the leader if I wasn't actually uh, doing the leading. Dave is on the line now from Warsaw. Go ahead, Dave. Hey, George, how are you? Good. Nice to hear from you, sir. <laughs> Thank you. George, you know, I've got to say, when I turn on the mainstream media in the States, I feel like I'm living in the upside down. You know, when you it comes both. to... Uh, you and me both. <laughs> Parallel universe. When it, yeah. When it comes to Suleimani, everything I see tells me that he's a terrorist and that he's a bad guy. Meanwhile, he was the number one fighter of ISIS and Al-Qaeda in Syria exactly. and Iraq. Exactly. You know, <laughs> and the if funny it, part if is... It, if, it wasn't, if it wasn't for him... Syria and yeah. Iraq would not exist as states yes. right now, and they'd all, yes, be, they'd, they'd all be speaking ISIS. Yes, and I'm being told that he's the terrorist. Meanwhile, our number one ally in the area, Saudi Arabia, are the ones that are exporting all the terrorism. But where are their best buddies? I don't understand what planet I live on anymore, George. Well, uh, <laughs> you couldn't, I couldn't put it better than you have, uh, and so I'm not going to try. Uh, I'm just wondering... Um, how it is, how it genuinely mystifies me, how it is that the American political class, overwhelmingly the American media, except some quite exceptional and unexpected voices like Tucker Carlson, for example, on Fox News, mm -hmm. uh, the American political and media class appear utterly untroubled by the fact that they have become the de facto allies of the very people that carried out the terrorist atrocity against the United States on 9-11-2001. How, how can that not trouble you? And George, that's one of my main points is, how many Iranians attacked us on 9-11? Zero. Zero. How many Saudis attacked us on 9-11? What was it, 15 out of the 19 hijackers were either Saudis? 13, either 13 or 15. And, yes. and, and all of them were motivated uh, by the uh, Wahhabist Takfiri madness, uh, the, exactly. fountain, the fountainhead of which is Saudi Arabia. Yes. <laughs> you couldn't again, make it up. You couldn't I'm make it to, up. But I'm supposed to believe that Suleimani is the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, extraordinary. Listen, Dave, uh, all the, the phone lines are uh, full. The switchboard is completely full. So I'll say goodnight to you, if I may, in Warsaw, because there's a legend on the line. Let's hear from Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. Um, Dennis, I wrote his name down from Brooklyn, said really what I wanted to say. So it's not much. But, you know, why did Trump do it? I mean, what did he hope to gain? And he's losing control, and... You know, it's a no-win situation. I, I honestly think he might have gone mad uh, by now. Yeah, um, I think so. I, I think I, so. I, I genuinely fear for the sanity of the most powerful man on the planet. Well, I hope he goes to an asylum and, you know, Bernie Sanders comes along and he's impeached Trump and that's the only way I can think of 
getting out of this situation. You can know? you imagine I'm in, uh, in Ward 5 at Broadmoor? I can. Oh. <laughs> Holding court, the big orange man. Oh, dear. I don't know what I'd do with him, really. <laughs> uh, well, uh, it's very, very, very dangerous. Uh, he, if he, no. if, if, uh, if he, if the Iranians respond, as I'm certain that they will, and he then responds in what he says is a disproportionate manner, destroying cultural sites and so on, and thus triggering uh, uh, a regional war of enormous proportions. Uh, God save us, please. God save us. Let's uh, let's uh, pray that that does not happen. Norma, how's your husband? We haven't had a bulletin for a little while. <laughs> no. Well, actually, we're, we're, we are deteriorating, George. We're all um, deteriorating. The yeah, question is, at what rate? Well, you know, he can't walk very well, and I can't breathe very well. So, um, Well, stop smoking, fag-ass Oh, throat. I know, but you see, all this tension. You can't breathe very well, but I you're, know. you're still puffing away. Well, Not take very my often. advice. I'm five years off tobacco now, and... Uh, I intend to live for another 35 years on the strength of it. Norma, thank you uh, very much indeed. Lord Swift says, none of us know the intelligence the USA had pre-strike. Most folk, if honest, wouldn't have known the target's name before the strike. It's easy to get caught up in the set pro-hate Trump lines. History will decide whether this was the right move. History is coming your way, Lord Swift, very quickly. Informed dissent says Johnson is in the same political party as Trump. It's called the International Democrat Union. And Dundee Vibe says, never interrupt your enemy when he is making a mistake. Uh, I think uh, Napoleon's great dictum. And Nadir says, under this circumstance, and since Trump is a liability to his country and to the US alliance, the UK shall devise a contingency plan to deal exclusively with the US Congress as it is the only legitimate entity that represents the people of the United States. Guy is in Stoke-on-Trent. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, hi, George. George, I know we've had differences over Brexit, but I really must say it's been an interesting show this evening. Thank you, my friend. And cred and credit Brexit, where is, Brexit is last year. We're on to new <laughs> battles now. And credit where credit's due, you must surely be the most knowledgeable and informed politician or ex-politician in this country. There's no ex it about it, Guy. Okay, well, as in that as case, God, take... As long as God gives me breath. Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. But, but, but my, my point really being that you, 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 um, you, you understand the relationships, the allegiances, the history of the Middle East, mm. and you deserve a bigger platform than, than what you're getting at the moment. And, and it's such a shame that you don't get some major mainstream coverage. If only people can listen to you and decide, it, make an informed decision, as, as I believe that the mainstream uh, narrative on this is very one-sided, uh, almost... Well, look, you, you uh, know, Guy, <laughs> it's exceedingly kind of you uh, to say these things, especially as we did have our differences. But I've got to put your right on something. The mainstream media, as you, uh, you and others imagine it, is no longer actually mainstream. Uh, and the numbers of people that I'm speaking to right now, and my words will reach through the course of this week uh, online, before we get to next Sunday, 
dwarfs, utterly dwarfs anything that you might think of as the mainstream media. I mean, short of being on the Graham Norton show, I could not be speaking to more people than I currently am. Almost a million people will watch this show. Almost a million will watch. Never mind listen, because we can't count them. Almost a million people will listen to this show. Do you know how many people watch Sky News or BBC Question Time? Do you know how many people watch Newsnight? Do you know how many people read The Guardian or The Independent? It is tiny by comparison with the audience of the mother of all talk shows right now. I had an audience on talk radio, a little local London radio station, uh, 29 weeks ago, and I was probably reaching 30,000 people by the end. Now I'm talking to almost a million. So don't cry for me, Argentina. Uh, I am reaching more people now than I have ever reached in my life. I told you earlier, my six months old broadcast from June on Iran was relaunched less than 72 hours ago and got a million views in less than 72 hours. So spread the news, spread, hallelujah, spread the news that there's an alternative to the mainstream media. It's called the mother of all talk shows. It's on my Facebook, my YouTube, my Twitter, and more and more and more people are tuning in to it. So I've got to tell you, Guy, and I'm grateful and touched uh, by what you uh, had to say, we are the new mainstream, and we should not allow them to imagine. If someone calls me now, the only person I respond to is, is Piers Morgan. If Piers Morgan invites me on his show, I go there uh, because I like the show and I like him. But if somebody called me for a comment from The Independent uh, or The Telegraph, why would I pick up the phone to them only to be distorted in what I had to say? Why would I travel across London to go on Newsnight so the, uh, the, uh, the uh, perpetrators of Newsnight could seek to persuade the public that I'm some kind of criminal or madman or both. Why would I do that? I can speak to you directly, without censorship, without distortion. And that's what I am doing. And you, by building this huge audience, are doing a great service, not to me, but to yourselves and to the public realm, to the public discourse. Because whether you agree with what you've heard here this evening or not, you have to acknowledge that these arguments, these perspectives, this point of view has to be heard and that we have a track record of being correct. Far more of a track record of turning out to be right than those who disparage us but continue to imagine they are the mainstream media. It's been marvellous. Thanks for joining me. See you next week. God willing. <laughs>